Well, good morning. He is risen. I'm always a little nervous to do call and responses like that because, like, you never know, like, somebody's going to respond. But that one I felt relatively confident in. And they reassured me backstage a minute ago that you would respond. So thank you for coming through. So we're glad you're here with us to celebrate this Easter Sunday. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to have you with us this morning as we celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that, that sin is defeated, that Satan is conquered, that death has been overcome. We are glad that you're here with us this morning. Following the service, we'll continue that celebration with a brunch downstairs that you are welcome to join us at. We are just looking forward to worshiping and celebrating with you this morning. So that let's enter a time of worship. Thank you, Stan, and we're going to rejoice a little bit this morning. All the songs that are, we're singing this morning are definitely about the resurrection and about Jesus and his victory from the grave. So um, if you don't know the song, you can spend some time just kind of reading the lyrics and, and worshiping that way. But. Who wore our sin? 
You may be seated. Good morning. We're excited that you're here. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm the other pastor here at Three Lakes E-Free. Um, if you would like to worship through giving, we have some options for you. You can give on our back table in the foyer, um, or you can give online at tlefc.org. Thank you for all of you who have been so um, so great at, at giving. Um, would, you, would you pray with me? Dear Father God, it is Easter morning. And that is, a, that is a time of joy. That is a time of victory, Lord. You borrowed the tomb for three days. And then that tomb was empty because you were not there. We praise you, Lord, as the victorious king. Defeating death. Bringing life. We thank you for the fact that we are the church, that we get to be a part of that victory with you, Lord. Help us today to live in that victory. Help us to remember what you did for us, dying on that cross, and the sorrow and the pain and the hurt, but also help us remember on the third day that the tomb was empty, that the victorious king had won, and that your reign is everlasting, Lord, and we are a part of that. Help us to worship you well this morning. Help us to worship you sincerely, and we ask that you would help us to proclaim your name well today. May all the glory go to you, Lord. Help us to cut through to the distractions, all the other things that are happening. Help us to focus well on your win. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll be reading out of Mark 16 this morning. This is Mark 16. I'm going to start in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, they, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away? from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The word of God. I invite you to stand for a time of music and worship. Um, so I was thinking about last year at this time, I don't, 
know what you all were doing, but I know we were, we, we Zoomed my parents and we were in our house alone as a family and it was the weirdest Easter ever probably. I hope that you all just have a, can rejoice in the fact that we're together as community this morning and that we are um, praising God together and celebrating this day together because that's a big deal you think about the last year that we've had this is a big deal for us all to be here and I hope that as we're singing you can just kind of listen to the people around you and um, really embrace that we're here as a church celebrating Easter this year
going to sing um, before Pastor Tim comes is Because He Lives, which is an old Gaither song. Old and like, not super old, but old enough where it's not as new as our other songs. But I just think this song is about as beautiful as it can be for Easter morning. So just worship well with us this morning.
Because your son wrote, because your son lived. If that were not true, our lives and our faith would be futile. But because he lives, fear is gone and life is worth living. Father, we praise you 
that Jesus lived, that Jesus rose again. And we never take that lightly. We never say that flippantly. May we be continually amazed that Jesus lives. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So hopefully it's not terribly surprising if I tell you that every once in a while I have moments of pride creep into my life. Like there's a lot of ways that pride can cause problems for me. But one of the ways that stands out is that I really don't like asking questions after someone has explained something to me once. I don't like asking clarifying questions. Like, Like you can put me in charge of landing a plane with hundreds of passengers, be like, give me like a two-minute explanation, and be like, any questions? And I'd be like, nah, I got this. I'll figure it out as I go. Like, I don't want to ask questions and look dumb. So like, needless to say, that can have consequences sometimes. So when I was in seminary, I started out taking classes online. I was living in Minnesota. The seminary was in Kentucky, so I was taking classes online. And the nature of online seminary classes is that you're kind of disconnected from the other students, especially students who live on campus. And part of that is that you don't get all the tips and the tricks and the insider information about like, how to choose the best classes passed on to you. And so I took my first Hebrew class, well, online, living in Minnesota. And then we moved down to Kentucky, and I registered for the second Hebrew class to take it on campus during my first semester down there. But because just how things worked out scheduling, I had to register with a different professor than I had taken the first Hebrew class with. And one of the pieces of kind of insider information that didn't get passed on to me as an online student, that there were two distinct methods for teaching Hebrew being used at Southern Seminary during that time. So these methods were distinct both in like the order they taught stuff, like how they taught conjugations and things, but also in the vocabulary words they taught in the first class. And so I walk into my first day of Hebrew 2, with my very first class on campus. And the very first thing we do is take a vocabulary quiz over the word we were supposed to have learned the previous semester. Now, like, I wasn't a great Hebrew student in the first place, so I wasn't expecting to do great on this quiz even when I heard we were taking it. But about, like, halfway through the quiz, I thought, like, man... I am really not doing well on this quiz. And all I had to do right there at that point is raise my hand or go up to the teacher and be like, uh, I don't think I even learned these words. Like, not just that I don't remember what they mean, but like, I don't, they don't recognize them. And like, he would have been very gracious and told me, oh, you took Hebrew 1 with this method and we used this method. You should probably switch. But I didn't want to admit that I didn't understand something. So I just like powered through the quiz and did my best. Let me get into the class. Pass the quiz, end the actual class, and we start reviewing 
material from the previous semester. And again, like, none of it sounds familiar to me. Like, I'm like, what is going on? But, like, I don't want to show how dumb I am or, like, how lucky I got to get through Hebrew 1, so I'm not going to ask any questions. Like, I just, this, this went on and on to, like, the third or fourth class of the semester. When I, like, someone finally pointed out to me, oh, yeah, there's two methods of learning Hebrew, and you learned the first half with this other method, and now you're using this method. But by that point, I was, like, four classes in, I was, like, you know, 20% of the way through the semester, I felt invested. Like, like I'm not going to bail out now and waste all this time I put into this class. So I just kind of forced myself to catch up, and I barely survived that Hebrew class. All because I was too proud to ask a question when I didn't understand something. Like, it can be embarrassing how much my pride can get in the way sometimes. How many problems my pride can cause me. But I take solace a little bit in the fact that I'm not alone. Like, I'm not the only one. And I know I'm not the only one because there are verses in the Bible like Luke chapter 9, verses 44 and 45. In these verses, Jesus says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Right? So he's like trying to get their attention. Like, listen carefully. Like, pay attention, guys. Listen carefully. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But then Luke says, but they, the disciples, did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. They were afraid to ask him about it. Like, and like sometimes it's easy to look at the disciples and some of the foolish things they do and be like, what were you guys thinking? Like, why would you do that? Right, but this one, this one hits home. Like, this one I get. Like, I can relate to what they're going through here. Here we are. Like we're following this super wise rabbi. But we don't want to look dumb like ask some silly question and jeopardize our invitation to follow him. So I'm just going to smile and nod along and pretend I know what he's saying, even though I have no idea what's going on. Three times in the book of Luke, Jesus made clear statements, clear predictions about his coming death and resurrection. But each time the Bible points out that the disciples didn't understand what he was saying. But they never asked him about it. Perhaps Jesus' most clear statement is found in Luke 18 when he says, We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophet about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. Like, on the third day, he will rise again. Like, based on that, the events of Good Friday and Easter should not have surprised anyone who was paying attention to what Jesus said during his earthly ministry. But then Luke goes on to say, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. And so all of this leads to an interesting set of circumstances as we pick up the story of the resurrection. Like Jesus has been abundantly clear about what's about to happen. 
Like throughout his ministry, he's made it clear over and over again. And yet his followers are totally caught off guard. Like they don't expect his death. They don't expect his resurrection. And that's, the, that's the situation we find things in, in Luke 24. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of Luke 24 to you. They'll be on the screen as well. This is what they'll first say. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And now it can be easy to like be so familiar with the story that we kind of just rush through. Like, we just take a minute to think about like what this experience would have been like for these women in this moment. I just imagine you're going to the tomb of a loved one. Maybe you're bringing flour to place on the tomb. And you get there, and the ground is dug up, and the coffin lid is flipped open, and there's no one inside. That's what they're experiencing here. And if that happens to you, like probably your first thought is not, oh yeah, that person rose from the dead. <laughs> That's not the first thing that goes through your mind. Right? Probably the first thing is like, consternation and confusion and wonderment like as your brain searches for some kind of explanation. And that's where these women find themselves as the story continues. But thankfully, they don't have to wait long for someone to explain what happened. Picking up in verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Now that's like the seven-word summary of Easter right there. Right? Like, he is not here. He has risen. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Death couldn't hold him. He has conquered the grave. He has defeated sin. And these angels go on to say, Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Right? Suddenly all these things that Jesus had said during his life about what would happen to him come flooding back. Their minds are opened and they understand what is going on. And so they, they go back to the group of followers of Jesus and they tell them what they discovered, picking up in verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they, did not, but they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. He went away wondering to himself what had happened. Another translation translates verse 12 as, He went away marveling at what had happened. 
That's what Easter is, right? Like it's, it's marvelous. Like it's incredible. It's wonderful. It is awesome. A man was dead and is now alive again. It is worth wondering at. But here's the question. Right? One I want to ponder with you for the rest of our time this morning. And I'll admit, like this question at first, like the the answer seems so obvious that you're going to wonder why I'm asking it. But just hear me out. So here's here's the question. The resurrection is marvelous and incredible and wonderful. It's all those things. But why does it matter? It's great that Jesus came back to life. But if he hadn't, would it change anything? That's a question I remember wrestling with when I was in college. Not long after I started seriously following Jesus, I had her start asking the question, like, does it matter that Jesus really rose from the dead? Okay, my, my logic on something like this. I know I'm a sinner, that as a sinner I'm not worthy to enter God's presence, so I need a Savior. And I, I believe Jesus is that Savior, that He died on the cross for my sins. Like on the cross, I believe Jesus took my place. He bore the wrath of God for my sins for me. My sins were paid for on the cross. So therefore, does the resurrection matter? Like if my sins were taken care of on the cross, does the resurrection matter? Does it ultimately matter if Jesus rose from the dead? What I've kind of come to realize and see is that a lot of that confusion comes from a bit of a deficiency in how we talk about like, what the gospel, what the good news about Jesus is. A few years ago, the author Dane Ortland asked a bunch of pastors to, to summarize the message of the Bible in one sentence. Now, obviously, that's a huge task, right? a challenge that... It's just a huge task. That's a challenge to do, but that's kind of the point. And I have deep respect for all the people who he quoted and who answered this. I'm going to read you a few of their responses and just notice how little mention of the resurrection is found in these answers. So the message of the Bible in one sentence. One pastor said, A holy God sent his righteous son to die for unrighteous sinners so we can be holy and live happily with God forever. Another said, God, who made us and everything else, loves us and gave himself for us that we might live forever with him as new creatures and a new creation. The news is good. A third said, God created mankind in order to love them, but we all rejected his love So God sent his son to bear our sins on the cross in order that by believing in his sacrificial atonement, we might have life. Those are all good answers. They're all good one-sentence summaries of the message of the Bible. But it is striking how little talk of the resurrection is found in all those summaries. And this is kind of like emblematic of how a lot of us have been taught to think about 
what Jesus did. We place a heavy emphasis on the fact that he died for our sins, which is a great and a precious truth. But at least sometimes we emphasize his death to the neglect of his resurrection. Like I was, that kind of triggered that period of questioning in my own mind about what the significance of the resurrection is. I remember as I was going through that time, I was reading through the book of Romans, and I came in on chapter 4, and there Paul writes, He, that is Jesus, He was delivered over to death for our sins. That's the part we talk about all the time. But then Paul goes on to say, And was raised to life for our justification. And for me, like reading that one verse started a process of ending all my questions about the significance of the resurrection. Jesus was raised for our justification. Without the resurrection, I am not justified. Therefore, it must matter. This verse tells us, because of the resurrection, I can have hope that like, through faith in Jesus, not only does God forgive my sins, because they were paid for by Jesus on the cross, but I can also have hope that Jesus' righteous life is applied to me. I once heard someone say that the word justified, when I'm justified, like God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd always obeyed. Which is incredible. Like, according to Paul in this verse, it's all because of the resurrection that I can experience that. That's where I came across this verse. I started to see like the importance of the resurrection emphasized all throughout the New Testament. For Paul, for the other New Testament writers, right, the resurrection is not just a nice bonus on top of the more important work of Jesus dying on the cross. For Paul and the other New Testament writers, the resurrection is absolutely essential to the work that Jesus came to do. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, right, he gives a one-sentence summary of his own about what the most important things to know are. And this is what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Paul doesn't neglect the resurrection in his one-sentence summary of the most important truths of the Bible. So in the rest of our time this morning, I want to give us, just spend a little bit of time thinking about why the Bible says the resurrection is so important. I want to consider four things with you that the resurrection is. Like four reasons the resurrection matters. The first of those is this. The resurrection is an invitation. More specifically, the resurrection is an invitation to place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. In the book of Romans, Paul is explaining to his readers what is required for them to have eternal life, to be saved. And he says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and... 
believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To be a Christian, you must believe not just that Jesus died for your sins, but also that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is the claim upon which Christianity rises or falls. It is the claim that sets it apart from every other religion and worldview. Plenty of religions claim to follow great teachers. Plenty of religions claim to follow miracle workers. Many men have claimed to speak for God. But what sets Christianity apart, what makes Jesus unique, is the claim of the resurrection. As Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. If the resurrection isn't true, then the rest of the claims of Christianity quickly fall apart. But the good news is, like, we have good reason to believe that the resurrection is true. Like, Jesus' enemies, like, from the very beginning, knew that if they could prove that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, they could put an end to the growth of Christianity. All they had to do was produce the body of Jesus and the spread of Christianity would come to a screeching halt. But they couldn't do it. Because there was no body in the grave to produce. He is not here, Luke says. He is risen. And so if you're, you're here this morning and you're watching online or because like going to church on Easter is something you feel like you're supposed to do, but you've never actually taken the time to really consider what you believe about Jesus. Or if your faith is kind of a secondary part of your life. First of all, like, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're joining us. But second, I invite you to consider what do you really believe about the resurrection? We're here this morning celebrating Easter because we really believe that Jesus was a real man, a man who really died and who really bodily rose from the dead. And because we believe that, it changes everything. In the words of Tim Keller, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, why worry about anything, he said. Either Jesus is who he says he is, and therefore he deserves our full devotion and obedience, or he isn't. In which case, there's no reason to worry about anything he said or did. For many of us here, we are here because we have staked our life on the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. But if you've, if you've never reached that point, if you've never kind of fully committed yourself, fully believed in the resurrection and in Jesus, then the resurrection is an invitation for you to consider what you believe about Jesus and to place your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. 
But the resurrection is an invitation. But it's also a declaration. The resurrection is a declaration by God that Jesus Christ is his son. That Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. In Romans 1, Paul writes, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection. Which is a shorthand way for Paul to say like, everything that Jesus claimed about himself was shown to be true by his resurrection. The resurrection is a declaration that Jesus really did live a sinless life. That he really does have authority to forgive sins. That God's wrath against our sins had really been satisfied. If, if Jesus had not been raised, we could never be certain that Jesus had successfully completed the work of paying for our sins. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, If the Lord Jesus Christ had not literally risen physically from the grave, we could never be certain that he had ever really finished the work. If he has died in our, for our sins, we must not only be certain that he has died, but that he has finished dying. That there is no longer death. When God raised his son from the dead, he was proclaiming to the whole world, he has done everything. He has fulfilled every demand. Here he is, risen. Therefore, I am satisfied with him. The resurrection is God's declaration that death is fully defeated. That sin has been totally overcome. That Satan is vanquished. Those truths are sort of a hope. And without the resurrection, we cannot be sure of them. But with the resurrection, God declares that everything that needed to be done for our sin to be forgiven, for us to have eternal life, has been accomplished in Jesus. So the resurrection is an invitation to trust in Jesus. It's a declaration that Jesus successfully completed the task he set out to accomplish. And third, the resurrection is an application. That is to say, it is through the resurrection that Jesus' sinless, righteous life is applied to us. We often talk about how Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. We talk about how our sin deserves punishment and death. And how on the cross Jesus bore that punishment and removed God's wrath from us. And that's wonderful, but it's only half of the equation. The removal of the guilt of our sin only brings us back to a neutral position. God is no longer displeased with us, but he is not yet pleased if it's only been a removal of our sin. Like, we may not believe that in our head, but I don't know about you, but for me, like, that's how I live a lot of the time. Like, oh great, I've been forgiven, my sins are wiped clean, but now I need to work, do things on my own power to make God happy with me, right? to earn God's favor and joy in me. 
But the resurrection tells us that isn't true. We read a minute ago, like Paul says, Jesus was raised for our justification. Justification is not just the declaration that we're not guilty. It is the declaration that we are righteous. In the words of 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might not just be forgiven, but that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you think about like, your relationship with God as a, as a bank account, right? and sin is like an overdraft. Right? It puts you in the red. Like, we are in spiritual debt because of our sin. But then Jesus comes and he pays that debt for us by his death on the cross. Right? He cancels the debt of our sin. But he also gives us access to his own account of righteousness, which holds more righteousness than we could ever need. The resurrection shows us that Jesus still had favor with the Father after his death. That his righteousness was greater than the debt that he paid. And because of that, his righteousness is applied to us. The beauty and the glory of Easter is not just that our sins are forgiven, but that right now you are righteous in the eyes of God if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what sins you may be battling right now, when God looks at you, He sees the perfect, sinless life of His Son. He is well pleased with you. The Son's righteousness has been applied to you through the resurrection. That's a glorious truth. There's one more glorious truth about the resurrection. Not only is it an invitation, not only is it a declaration and an application, but it's also a promise. The resurrection of Jesus is a promise of our own future resurrection. Listen to Paul one more time from 1 Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Ultimately, the great hope that is offered by the resurrection is that we too will one day be raised with Jesus.
We will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with him. Jesus says resurrection is a promise that death is defeated. It's a promise that Jesus reigns. The resurrection is a promise that there is coming a day when he will return. That he will give new life to all who have died. That he is making all things new. The Bible ends in the book of Revelation with this beautiful picture about what the end of history looks like. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. They paint this glorious picture of our eternal future. And the resurrection, they promise that those words, the words of those verses, will come true. As I close now, like, let me just read these words to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The resurrection is the promise. It is the guarantee that those words are indeed trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your Son, So thankful, Jesus, for what you endured on our behalf on the cross, that you died in our place. Father, we are so thankful that by your power you raised him from the dead. That the declaration that death is defeated, that Satan is conquered. we can have hope in Jesus. Father, would that never grow old? We'd be constantly blown away by what you've done for us in Jesus and in raising him from the dead. God, as we live this life now looking forward to the day that we just read about in Revelation, would we live in the knowledge of the fact that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us right now through the Holy Spirit, giving us power to live lives that are obedient and glorifying to you. 
Help us to live in light of that truth, God. In Jesus' name, amen. In a minute here, we're going to stand and sing a final song. It's called Man of Sorrows. And the phrase Man of Sorrows comes from Isaiah 53. I just want to read a a verse out of there. Um, It says, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The verse of this, um, the words are, Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed, the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Please stand with us and sing.
Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. You are dismissed. No hold on me, whom the sun.